Well, many of you here along with me are readers. I love to read a good book. I'm part of a book club where we read a book every month. And, and any of you who have ever read a book, and even you young ones who are just learning how to read a book, you know there's a right way to read a book. You start from the beginning and you go to the end. You don't randomly take the book that you just gotten from the library, let it fall open to the middle, and read three paragraphs, and then put it aside and think about what you read. That doesn't make any sense, does it? You wouldn't get the plot. You wouldn't know the characters. You just wouldn't get the book. My guess is you wouldn't read much of it. And yet, isn't it interesting that that's so often how we treat the Bible? Right? We, we have this Bible. It's a book. And we don't know where to read, so we let it fall open, and we read what's well, broken up into sections for us. So we read one little section, then we put it away, and we think about that one little section. And, and that's okay. okay. It's broken up into sections for a reason, because you can take those sections, you can learn a lot from what Jesus teaches or God shows us in those little sections. But it all comes to life in a new way when you read it as it was meant to be read when you read it as a book. Matthew put together his book that we're reading through for Lent. He put it together as a book, and there's reasons why one section follows another, and, and you get the characters, and you get the plot, and you get the overarching theme when you read it all together. And so this morning, we're going to look at two chapters together, chapter 19 and 20 of the book of Matthew, because there's a profound message in these chapters that doesn't come from the sections themselves. It comes from the story being told when you put them all together. There's six different sections in these two chapters. But when you put them together, there's one major message. And that message is about power. It's about power. Because in, in this message, we see Jesus moving towards power. Okay, if you've been here, you know uh, throughout this journey that we're going on with Jesus through the book of Matthew that, that Jesus has spent almost all of his time up here in Nazareth, kind of the backwoods countries of Israel. Uh, here down in Jerusalem is where the power is, right? This is where you have your political power, your religious power, anybody's anybody's in Jerusalem. Jesus has been hiding out in Nazareth up here. Now we know we know that he's ducked down into Jerusalem from the other Gospels. He, he's come down here for some festivals every once in a while, but, but he's always retreated quickly back up to Nazareth. Okay? Well, we find at the very beginning of 19 that Jesus is making his move. And he's walking right into this, this vicinity of power, the proximity of power in Jerusalem. And power is addictive, isn't it? You, f you felt it. We know it. We want power. And once you get a little bit of power, you want more of it. Now, if you're like me, your mind immediately thinks, okay, politicians have power. Dictators have power. Wealthy business owners, they have power. I don't have power. I'm just, I'm just, no. We all have power, and we all want power, and we all get addicted by power. Right? Sometimes we're pulled in by the power of climbing the social ladder already in middle school. You middle schoolers, you high schoolers here, you know that power of when you move into the cool group, of when you, you get the social authority at school, and we're pulled by that power even if it means bullying somebody else, even if it means rudely leaving a friend behind who's not got the same social influence. We know that pull of power. 
We know the pull of power at work when, when you, you appreciate your position at work and the influence over people, the influence over processes, and you just want more. We feel the pull of power, the power of money in our lives. Right? Money gives you the power to purchase and the power to influence, maybe the power to escape, maybe the power to keep up with everybody else around you and their possessions, and we want more of it. We all deal with power. And the magnetic pull is strong. And here Jesus walks right towards that force of power. Matthew's made it very clear to us in the first 18 chapters that, that Jesus has been purposely avoiding Jerusalem. Well, here we're going to get closer. We're moving towards Jerusalem. Here at the start of chapter 19, that all changes, right? Look at the first two verses of chapter 19. When Jesus has finished saying these things, he left Galilee and he went into the region of Judea to the other side of the Jordan. So here Jesus is on the move. He moves from this fringe region of Galilee, and he comes down to Judea. He doesn't head right to Jerusalem. Instead, he comes next door to Jerusalem. He heads over by the Jordan River, about 20 miles away from Jerusalem, right by where we saw he was baptized. He's hanging out at the Jordan River, but he's right next door to Jerusalem, the seat of religious and political power. He's going to have a confrontation with the powers that be. So far, any confrontation with the Pharisees, with the religious and political leaders has happened up in Galilee, on Jesus' turf, with Jesus' crowds all around him. Well, now he's coming into their territory. He's coming into their vicinity, and now he's going to challenge the powers that be without his crowd around him, with their crowds on their turf. Place matters. Remember, we've been learning that. Place matters. And Jesus moves south now to Judea, signals that coming confrontation. Okay, so he doesn't go straight to Jerusalem. Instead, he's hanging out by the Jordan River. And, the, and these two chapters of his conversations and his encounters in, over there by the Jordan River show a brilliant message when you put them all together. A brilliant message about the heart of Jesus' ministry and about the heart of power in our lives as well. So we immediately see the confrontation begin in chapter 19. Uh, the opening skirmish comes when Jesus is confronted by the religious powers of his day in the first half of chapter 18. Verse 3 tells us that some Pharisees came to him to test him. Most likely they walked over from, from Jerusalem, and they asked him a question about divorce. Right, here's the question in, in verse 3. Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any and every reason? It's a legitimate question. And we can, we can learn a lot from Jesus' answer from verse 4 through verse 12. But what we most often miss when we just read that section all by itself is we miss their motivation here in asking the question. You see, the Pharisees here were not really interested in Jesus' answer. They weren't interested in his opinions and his teaching on divorce. They were interested in getting him in trouble. They were interested in setting a trap for him that would take away any potential power he might have and keep the power religiously and politically grounded with them, the Pharisees. You see, this question about divorce at Jesus' time was all the rage, the debate in Jerusalem. There was one rabbi in Jerusalem at the time who was teaching that yes, 
you had the right to divorce your wife for any and every reason. You see a girl who's cuter? Go ahead and divorce your wife and go, go marry her. That's a fine and valid reason. You had another rabbi in Jerusalem at that time who was teaching, no, the law of Moses tells you that the only time you can divorce your wife is, is for unfaithfulness. So they go to Jesus, which one is it? Pick a side. And it's lose-lose for Jesus. If he sides with, with no, only unfaithfulness, then, then he's going to alienate a whole bunch of people who really like this other rabbi's teaching and the freedom that he gave. If he says, yeah, go ahead, any and every reason is just fine, then he's standing against the law of Moses, and he's going to lose a whole bunch of other followers. He loses either way. It's a test he can't pass. The Pharisees are bringing towards him a magnetic pull towards power, right? What are you going to do? How are you, are you going to grab power here? And Jesus doesn't fall into that trap. He could have lambasted them. He could have challenged their motivations. He could have set himself up above them as, as the more powerful thinkers. He could have grabbed this power at this moment for himself. But he refuses to step into their trap. Instead, he answers their question in truth and in love. And then he's careful to take the antidote, the antidote to this pull towards power. See what he does in the next section? He turns his attention away from the high and mighty Pharisees, and he focuses on the little children instead. It is not a coincidence that as Matthew is writing his book, he moves right from this encounter with the power of the Pharisees to Jesus encountering the powerlessness of the children in verse 13. He put these stories right side by side for a purpose. You see, people there gathered by the Jordan were bringing their little children to Jesus. And the disciples were rebuking them. They were keeping them away. They were saying, get your children far away. Get them to be silent. They were making a barrier so that Jesus could focus all of his time, could focus all of his energy on the important people. Important people like these Pharisees. Doesn't have to be, Jesus doesn't have to be distracted by these, these little kids that don't matter. Remember, this is a patriarchal society. Men mattered. Women came in a distant sec second. Children far behind. They should be seen and not heard. So for Jesus to turn his attention towards the children, when these powerful Pharisees were standing here wanting to talk with him, whoa, that sends a significant message. That move in Jesus that Matthew makes clear for us tells everybody gathered there, including the Pharisees, tells us that Jesus isn't at all interested in the kind of power that these Pharisees are wielding. He is not interested in the power that comes from social standing. He's not interested in the power that comes in the religious standing of the day. He's not interested in the power that comes from climbing the ladder of influence and authority. That's not what he's about. It's not what his kingdom is about. And it's these children that offset that magnetic power, that pull of power in his life. 
It's the children that remind him and ground him, to tell, tells everybody and reminds him that his ministry, his heart is for people, specifically for the powerless, for the ones that the people in power ignore, the ones that the people in power abuse, the ones that the people in power take advantage of. Those are the ones Jesus cares about most. So, so think about that message for your own life for a moment. Again, you and I might assume that, that we are immune to the pull of power in our lives. We can point it at, at others, but we don't see it in ourselves. Well, you know how you can evaluate whether the desire for power and position has you in its grasp, in its magnetic pull? Ask yourself, Ask yourself this morning, how much are you paying attention, intentional attention, to the little children of our society? Now, I'm not just talking about little kids. How much are you paying attention to the people in our society who, who have no power, who hold no influence, who wield no authority? In school, for those of you who are in school yet, are you a friend to those in your school? The ones who your school culture tells you that you shouldn't be friends with? They aren't going to help you climb the social ladder. They don't have that kind of influence. And it's not enough just to, to leave them alone. It's not enough just to, to not be the one bullying them or abusing them. Are you reaching out to them? Are you spending some of your social capital on them? Or do you just not care? Do you care more about power or the people? At work, for those of you who are working, does the rank of your position keep you from, from caring about those below you or caring about those working with you? Because if they have nothing to offer you, then you don't care. Or if they're the ones in competition with you to move up the corporate later, then they're your enemy. What do you think about those people? Do you, do you care? Do you have any meaningful relationships? Maybe with someone who's struggling in poverty. They might be a financial drain on you. They're not going to give you. They, they need. Do you have a relationship with anybody who's poor? Do you have any intentional relationship with somebody who's homeless? What about somebody who, who struggles mentally or emotionally? somebody who struggles physically? Do you even think about in your life, do you even spend time thinking about what it might mean to care for the poor, the refugees, the migrant families, the, the prisoners in this world? Or do they just not matter? If you have zero meaningful relationships with anyone that our society looks down on as one of these little children, then you've probably been pulled in by the magnetic pull of power in your life. If you're willing to let whole categories of people go unloved and uncared for and unprotected because they really don't matter to you, then you've probably been pulled in by the magnetic pull of power in your life. And if Jesus himself when he felt that pull towards power, if Jesus himself intentionally spent his time and his energy gathering people instead of power, 
then that's what we need to do as well. If Jesus needed that antidote, then we need it as well. We need to have those relationships that are not influenced by power, that are not influenced by rank. Ask yourself, are you taking the antidote? Or are you fully being pulled into the realm of the powerful? That's the first skirmish that Jesus experiences. It's not the last. In fact, the second one, the second one here comes close on the heels of the first. Okay, in, in verse 16, Matthew tells us that Jesus is approached by another power source. This time, Jesus is confronted by, by a rich young man. He's confronted by the power of money and finances. This man who, who stands before Jesus here, at verse 16, models the power of wealth over us. Yes, he stands there. Yes, he was theologically curious. Yes, he was interested in religion and, and how to follow God. Yes, he was interested in, in God himself. Otherwise, he wouldn't have made the 20-mile the hike to come and see Jesus, right? He's interested in Aunt Jesus answering the question, what good thing must I do to get eternal life? Okay, God meant something to him, obviously. But God didn't mean everything to him. In fact, God didn't even mean the most to him. We know from this story that his daily comfort that his money gave him, the social prestige that his money gave him, the influence and power that his possessions and his money gave him, that's what meant the most to him. His money is where he found his security. His money is where he found his identity. And so he walks away from Jesus. He walked away from the gift of grace, pulled back into the magnetic pull of power defined by his money. And it's after he walks away then that Jesus turns towards his disciples at the end of that chapter. And he gives them the antidote to this financial pull towards power. And this time it comes not in another interaction with people. This time it comes with with a direct teaching. He turns to them, and he, and he really summarizes his point of both of these chapters together when he says to them at the very end of this chapter, many who are first will be last, and many who are last will be first. That's his kingdom position. Right? He's telling us, he's telling them that wealth pulls us towards power and position in this life. And as it pulls us towards power and position in this life, it is pulling us away from our relationship with God. It has the power to pull us away from position in God's eyes and in his kingdom. The further we get, get, go towards power, the further away we get away from God. And so the antidote, he says to us, is to descend into greatness to descend into greatness in this life. You know what that looks like? That looks like choosing to be last. It looks like choosing service. It looks like choosing to be generous and to be selfless. It looks like choosing to sacrifice 
truly sacrifice in this life. That is what will pull us towards God. And just in case any of his listeners or any of us are imaginative thinkers instead of logical thinkers, Jesus begins chapter 20 with a story that if you follow up with your reading of Matthew for this week, you'll read this story. It's a story that, it's a rare story because Jesus actually tells us what the point is at the end. Often these parables he leaves kind of mysterious for us to figure out. At the end of this one, he tells us in verse 16, here's what this is all about. I told you the story so you'd know this. The last will be first, and the first will be last. So again, you and I, maybe you've already done this as you sit here this morning. We need to ask ourselves if we're actively pushing against that pull of financial power in our lives. It will pull us in. It will suck us in if we're not careful. Would people, if they were asked to describe you, would they describe your choices and your actions in life that they can see? Would they use words like service? Would they use words like generosity and kindness and sacrifice and selflessness? Are those the words that would immediately come to mind about you? If not, then, then we're missing the antidote here then we're caught in that magnetic pull towards power that our possessions and our wealth will inflict on us. There's one more confrontation here in these chapters. And it comes from an unexpected source. In verse 20 of chapter 20, Jesus meets with his two, two of his favorite disciples, James and John, right? The, the big three were Peter, James, and John. So here's two, two of the big three. And their mother is there as well. And she makes, she makes this request in verse 21. She looks at Jesus and she says, Grant that one of these two sons of mine may sit at your right and the other at your left in your kingdom. Pretty clear what she's asking for. It's a direct, direct ask for power. All the disciples knew that Jesus was coming to establish a kingdom. He had told them that, my coming kingdom. They assumed this kingdom was going to be just like every other kingdom they had seen in the world. And in those places, in those earthly local kingdoms, the people who sat on either side of the king were the most powerful and influential people in the kingdom. Right? They, influ- they exerted authority. They, they demanded respect. They demanded honor. And James and John, I'm sure we're not ignorant about what mom was coming to ask for. I think they were in on it. And really their question is, hey, Jesus, when your kingdom finally gets established, because I see we're getting closer to Jerusalem here, how about, how about the two of us become your right-hand and left-hand men? How about you give us the power over the rest of these disciples? And Jesus' answer to them is an answer that you and I need to listen very carefully to. It's a paragraph that we should read more often than we do. Because that, that temptation towards power will be in our lives as well. Like it was in James and John. 
Listen to verses 25 through 28. He's got the, all the disciples together now because the rest of the disciples were pretty ticked off when they found out because honestly they wanted that power for themselves. And listen to what Jesus teaches them. He says, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them and their high officials exert authority over them. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. And whoever wants to be first must be your slave. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. In Jesus' kingdom, your assumptions, my assumptions are turned upside down. Our assumptions about power and authority in the kingdom of God, Jesus says, it is the power to serve that is glorified, not the power to be served by others. In the kingdom of God, it is the slave, the lowly slave who is given honor and respect and who wields influence in the kingdom. In the kingdom of God, it is the people who this world says are in last place. It is those people who are going to get first place. And Jesus leads the way. He leads the way. We know where we're going with him, right? He's, he's going to a cross. He leads us all the way to a cross where he becomes our servant, where he becomes our slave, where he humbles himself completely and gives himself away completely for you and for me. That is the path to power in the kingdom of God. That is your path to power, my path to power. A power that really matters. Godly, kingdom, eternity-shaping power. And when we're tempted, we're tempted to, to reach for the power of this world, well, Jesus models for us the antidote once again. Look at the end of chapter 20 with me. Matthew gives us the exact same pattern that he did in, in chapter 19. So in verse 29, Jesus and his disciples are now ready to, to head towards Jerusalem, right? The, the, they're ready to go and face the powers that be. As they begin their journey, two blind men won't leave Jesus alone. They disrupt this, this moment, this parade towards Jerusalem. They disrupt it with a shout of, of Lord, Son of David, have mercy on us. And he just keeps shouting again and again. And verse 31 tells us that the crowd rebuked them. Does that sound at all familiar? Remember what the disciples were doing to the parents who were bringing their children in, verse, in chapter 19 to see Jesus? It says the disciples rebuked them. Matthew uses the exact same word. He's showing us a pattern here. This time the crowd rebuked them. These blind men were not worthy of Jesus' attention. Be quiet. Don't disrupt him. You're not worthy. They weren't Pharisees with all their power. They weren't rich businessmen coming, demanding Jesus' attention. They weren't faithful disciples 
They were nobodies with no influence, no authority, no power, no future, and Jesus stops. I think that's exactly why Jesus stops. That's why he pays attention to them. That's why he has compassion on them. That's why he heals them. This is exactly, Jesus is showing us, Matthew is telling us, this is exactly what it means to wield power in the kingdom of God. Because whoever wants to become great among us, you know who's great among us? It's the one who's a servant. It's the one who's a slave. It's the one who stops to heal the blind. When you take these two chapters together, when you read them as a whole, Matthew makes certain that we experience Jesus confronting us and confronting our desire for power. Yes, it's something Jesus had to confront as he journeyed closer to Jerusalem, as he journeyed closer to the power that resided there. And it's something you and I, each one of us, needs to confront daily. Because this desire for earthly, worldly power and rank and privilege and authority that comes with it, it will constantly pull at us when we are in proximity to it. The power of social standing will pull you and tell you to tease and to bully and ignore in the school hallway. It will tell you to go ahead and gossip and lie over coffee. It will tell you to speak judgment about somebody else instead of giving them grace. Whatever it takes for you to get the power, for you to, to gain rank and position, it's there. And the power of money will always pull at you it, it, will, it will pull you to justify your greed. It will pull you to never feel satisfied. It will pull you towards selfishness and towards making economic benefit the only decision-making filter in your life. It will pull you towards always wanting what somebody else has, always wanting more. The desire to have the power to impress people around you. The power to not need anybody else's help. The power to be in control at home or at work or at church. That will always tempt you. The pull of power. And it's when we're in the proximity of the power that you and I need to follow Jesus' lead. We need to hear his voice reminding us, remember that in my kingdom, the last will be first, and the servant is the greatest. In his kingdom, the truly great and the truly powerful invest themselves in children, invest themselves in the blind, invest themselves in the people who society doesn't care about, in the people who, who offer no promise of accolades and reward in return. That's the pathway to true and lasting power. Power that Jesus says will change this world. Will change this world 
and will change you and change me for eternity. Let's pray for that power. Father God, you know how much we are tempted by the powers of this life and of this world. We love to have influence and authority. We love to have control. We love to have social standing and respect. And and so often that kind of power is what we strive for. It's what we live for. It's what we pray for. And we don't listen carefully when you tell us that the last will be first and the first will be last. We don't like to listen carefully when you call us to be servants and slaves instead of the ones who are being served by others. Attune our ears, Father, to your kingdom power. The power to give, the power to love, the power to serve, the power of grace. Because we're reminded, Father, of what you sacrificed to reach us. We deserve nothing. We had nothing to offer back to you. There was no glory in store for you by reaching down to rescue us. And yet in your amazing grace, that's exactly what you did. And now you call us to follow that pattern with others. As we have received grace, may we give grace. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Worship team, would you come forward? Would you all please stand with us together right where you are? Go ahead and stand.